All right, we begin. Friends, welcome to part number three. I feel like there's a booming echo. Welcome to... <laughs> well, there's usually more furniture in this room. It's empty. It's nice and cool. Everything absorbs, you know. They did, yeah, yeah, yeah. Or somewhere. Um, all right, so welcome to our third session of High Holiday Boot Camp. So, as you know, this class is all about the holidays. And, give me one second... Hey, if you don't mind, close it slowly so it doesn't close all the way. All right, friends, so this class is all about the holidays. We've done a class on Rosh Hashanah. We did a class on Yom Kippur, and now we have our class on Sukkot, a.k.a. Sukkot, depending on how you pronounce it. It's all the same thing. Joel, welcome. It's great to have you here. Okay, so the topic is going to be the paradox of the Sukkah. Now, if you notice when you came in, if you parked back here or if you made your way kind of from back here, you notice that there's not just one sukkah up, there are two sukkot. One sukkah is the one you would go to and the other one you'd never go to. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> this is the sukkah I go to and that other sukkah I never step foot into it. Exactly. You always have to have two. Um, but it's, there's a, thank God, a, a nice large crowd here, so it actually requires both sukkahs and they're both full, overflow crowds, etc. Point is that I, I, was, I was here earlier and there was a, a team of like at least a dozen, probably more like 15 plus volunteers that were building the two, um, the two sukkahs. And, um, and I was here for other purposes and I wasn't able to stay and help. But it reminded me that, uh, you know, sukkahs is coming. Of course, we know this. When you see the sukkah building in action, um, our sukkah, parenthetically, so we have um, kind of like a built, what do you call it? Like a built... Um, Prefab? No, it's like a, like an outdoor thing with a... Oh, uh, 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 Yeah, maybe. Gazebo or like a perga, a pergola, pergola, whatever, something like that. Anyway, point, point being is that all we have to do is put down the walls and throw on the schach, boom shakalaka. For years. I, yeah, boom shakalaka. For years. I was like two by fours and building something from scratch. Wow. But yeah, it's, this is easier. Point is, tonight we're going to be talking about the sukkah and a paradox that we find regarding the sukkah. And the re resolution of the paradox is going to lead us into what I think are some very powerful life lessons. So let's begin. We're going to begin with the, uh, a bit of, a, of an introduction to the, to the holiday of Sukkot. The holiday of Sukkot begins this good evening, begins this weekend. Friday night and Saturday is day one. Saturday night, Sunday is day number two. It's an eight-day holiday. Um, in the diaspora, it's a nine-day holiday, the eighth or ninth day being uh, the day of Simchat Torah. The first days are marked by two major mitzvot. One is the mitzvah of sukkah, right? The sukkah, the structure, eating in the sukkah, many people sleep in a sukkah. And the second mitzvah is the mitzvah of the Dalad Minim, or the, um, the Esrog, Lulav, Hadassim, and Aravais. Those are the four plants that we, uh, that we I don't know, you, the Lulav is the palm branch, the Esrog is the citron, the um, Hadassim are the, will, are, are the um, myrtles, and then the Aravais are the, are, the, are, the, um, are the willows. You take all four together, you say a blessing, you give it a shake, and you do your mitzvah. Why? I don't know. It's probably driven by big plants or something. I'm kidding. Now, there's always big, you know, whatever market there is, big, uh, right. 
Um, well, it's know, funny. You're not going to tell a troll like that. I mean, you're going you're to tell us what's behind it, right? <laughs> not tonight. Tonight? <laughs> tonight. Hey. Um, Judah, it's in the back of the social hall. In the back of the social halls where the... Yeah, yeah they moved it. So anyway... Um, if I ask a question later, uh, would you answer it more? I will always answer questions. Okay. Absolutely. Including that one. But that was the only one you had. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, here's the deal. We're going to speak more about Ludlow and Estrig and all those stuff in, a, in another class. We have that, that would be for another topic. Today's topic is all about the sukkah, but I will mention parenthetically that one year I spent a ton of money. I bought an, I bought an Estrig. I took it home. There's something wrong with it. It didn't work over the holiday. It must have been a lemon. That's a joke. That's a joke. Lemon. Right. Okay. All right. Just me. <laughs> anyway, we're going to begin with text number one. That's always a great place to start. Text one is the quote from the Torah. That talks about the mitzvah of sukkah. Again, that will be the focus of tonight's class. So let's jump in. Adrian, if you don't mind, hold on, let me pull this up online. Text number one, which is from the book of Vayirka, the book of Leviticus. And please take it away. The to Moses saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, on the fifteenth day of the seventh month is the festival of Sukkot, a seven-day period for God. For a seven-day period you shall live in booths. Every resident among the Israelites shall live in booths, so that your ensuing generation should know that I have the children of Israel live in booths when I took them out of the land of Egypt. I am God. And Moses told the children of Israel these laws of God. Okay, so that is that is the quote that we're starting off with, the excerpt from the book of Ayikra, chapter twenty-three. So I want to focus on a few points. This is kind of a little, a little bit of background. The holiday is called Sukkot or Sukkot. We'll call it Sukkot. That's the way it's written here. The holiday is called Sukkot. As you see here, it's a seven-day holiday. There's an eight-day called Shmini Atzeret. Again, in the diaspora, we had another day, so it's actually eight plus one, which is nine days. But the major idea here is that for seven days, you shall live in booths. These booths are called sukkahs or sukkot. It's the same, same word, right? It's a booth is a sukkah, a booth is a sukkah, at least in the biblical parlance. Um, and the reason why we live in booths is, as verse 43 says, so that the ensuing generation should know that I had the children of Israel live in booths when I took them out of the land of Egypt. In other words, when we left the land of Egypt, we were living in temporary dwellings and to re, you know, in transit from Egypt to the promised land, you know, we were uh, en route. It might, be, it might be worthwhile to just put a chair over there and block that up. Thank you. I mean, keep it open. So because we lived in these temporary huts while traveling, so we remind ourselves of that. And the way we remind ourselves of that is... Um, is to, um, is, to, is, is to put up Sukkot, put up booths, and then we, we eat in them and we live in them, as it were, for seven days. There's an interesting, there's an interesting um, dispute, machloket, in the Gemara, in the Talmud. The Talmud has two opinions about what it means when God says, I had the children of Israel live in booths. So one rabbi says it means, what were the booths? Literal booths. We lived in tents. We didn't have any homes in the wilderness for 40 years. We had booths. We had temporary structures. Second opinion says that these booths are a reference not to physical booths, but to the clouds of glory. The Anani HaKavod, the clouds of glory that accompanied the Jewish people. These are the booths that we commemorate 
with, um, with the, the building of the sukkah. In other words, when we have the sukkah, and again, there's two sukkot outside right here, two structures. The question is, what's the meditation? Again, 43 says, have a meditation. You should know something. What's the meditation? Either, wow, we came from humble beginnings. We used to live in booths after the Exodus. Or God took care of us and put us in clouds of glory. Both valuable meditations. Both valuable meditations. Okay, now let's continue with some halachot, some laws regarding how to build a sukkah. Now, when it comes to these laws, we're going to find a paradox, um, as, you, as will, will unfold shortly. So let's begin with text number two. Lisa, please read text two from the Talmud. And here the Talmud discusses the Jewish building code. When you come to build a sukkah, what are the details, what are the parameters, what should it look like, what are the restrictions of measurement, etc. Take it away. A sukkah is a sukkah that is more than 20 cubits high of un, is unfit. Now stop for a pause for one moment. So the, the Talmud says, uh, right, this is from the Talmud Tractate Sukkah, that if the sukkah is more than 20 cubits high, it's not kosher. Now how much is 20 cubits? What's, what's a cubit? So there's a, that itself is a subject of some dispute and conversation. But according to the way we, the way halacha uh, kind of, um, you know, canonizes it, a cubit is 18 inches, a foot and a half. So 20 cubits is 30 feet. How high is 30 feet? It's pretty high. Yeah, this is what? This is, uh, what you, this is 15 or more? Eight, 15, maybe 20. It's, it's taller. It's a, a 20 cubit high sukkah, 30 feet is a very tall, very tall walls. And so the Talmud says, if you build it higher, if your walls are higher than 20 cubits, not kosher anymore. The question is why? Lisa, please continue. Okay. Um, Rabbi source uh, this ruling from the verses. For the seven-day period, you shall live in booths. The, te- the Torah says that the seventh day, you should leave from the permanent dwelling and live in temporary dwelling. Until the height of the of the twenty cubit and one makes the dwelling impermanent, um, but uh, above twenty cubits, a person does not make an impermanent dwelling rather than a permanent one. Good. So, in other words, the Talmud not only says the ruling but gives the rationale. What's Rava's rationale? And Rava was one of the great Talmudic sages. He says like this. The Torah says, For seven-day period, you should dwell or live in booths. It needs to be temporary. If, you, if your sukkah is over 30 feet tall, it has to be a strong structure. For, some, for walls to stand above 20, 30 feet means that you're talking about concrete or some, some very, you know, some very uh, sturdy structure. And thus, it ceases to be a temporary dwelling and becomes a permanent dwelling and permanent dwellings are not kosher. A sukkah by definition is an impermanent dwelling, a non-permanent a temporary dwelling. If it's permanent, if it's over 30 feet tall, no good. It's not kosher. Do you sleep outside? A lot of people sleep outside. I have a Oh, <laughs> but it's got to have a certain type of roof. It's, there's, there's a few criteria. You cannot put a tent inside the sukkah. No, it's not going to work. Because you have to be... Yeah. By the way, somebody took the concept of... I actually know the person who did this. Of a pop-up tent and made a pop-up sukkah. There is a sukkah on the market that fits into like, like a circular bag. 
you unzip it, you throw it up in the air conceptually, or you could just kind of like toss it, and it pops up, but it's tiny. No, it's tiny. It's for one person. Yeah, so you, it pops up, and then you have like a little mat, a little, a little schach mat, you roll it over, and you put a folding chair inside, you sit like this, and you eat something, and then you breathe. <laughs> and, then, and then you step outside. And then you breathe. No, 100%. That's exactly what it's for. It's exactly what it's for. It's very easy. It fits in, you know, almost the palm of your hand. And then your palm, the palm of your hand can fit into it. So it works, it works both ways. Anyway, the point here is, again, the, I want to make sure that this is very clear. The, the Talmud says, Halakha Zajushla says, that your sukkah can't be too tall. Because if it is too tall, then it's now, a, it's too solid of a dwelling. And this has to be a flimsy, portable, imp, imp, not so flimsy, but it has to be a, a non-permanent dwelling. Good. The problem with all this is that this flies in the face of the next halachic ruling within text number three. Um, Ronnie, please read text number three. Hold on, give me one second. Let me pull it back up on the screen. And this is going to be from the Code of Jewish Law, from the Shulchan Aruch, Laws of Sukkah. Take it away, text three. The verse states, in Sukkah you shall live seven days. The sages taught that the word live implies live as you normally live. In other words, in whichever way a person is accustomed to behaving in their own home. Torah requires them to transplant into the sukkah with their bed, sheets, and other useful articles. Our sages thus declare the entire seven days of the holiday a person deems their home as temporary and the sukkah as permanent. How? If you have nice sheets and nice dishes, bring them to the sukkah. Any cups for drinking should also be in the sukkah, as they are in the house throughout the year. Look at that. Look at that. Hold on. Before we get to the question, let's understand the law. The law says, again, the same verse, in Sukkot, you shall live seven days. And from this, our sages draw out the word live for seven days. Live. What does live mean? Live like you normally live at home, which means don't leave your nice dishes and pull out paper goods, you know, for your sukkah. Don't leave the nice glassware and pull out plastic cups for your sukkah. Don't, if you sleep in the sukkah, don't leave your nice bedding and pull out your sleeping bag for the sukkah. It's basically glamping. It's glamping. This is the original, thank you. This is the original Jewish glamping. We call this J-glamping. That's what this is, J-glamping right here. So, but this, but, but again, what's the idea? The idea here is that your sukkah should not be this transient space, this, uh, you know, secondary space. It needs to be your primary space. For seven days, this is now your new home. Welcome to your new home. Uh, there needs to be a reality show, right? Welcome to your new home sukkah edition or something like that, right? This is sukkah hunters. Uh, we have to find... Uh, <laughs> There you go. There you go. Bring the blender. Bring, hook up the power. Bring the blender. And the thatched Wi-Fi. Yeah. And the what? Thatched Wi-Fi. Thatched Wi-Fi. Exactly. Make sure you get high-speed internet for those chalamoid uh, work uh, work sessions. Here's the point. Your sukkah has to be for seven days. That has to be your primary dwelling. Your home. That's the temporary space. You move into your sukkah. However, all of this raises a very important question. And what's the question? Good evening. What's the question? The question is, we now have a contradiction. On the one hand, the structure 
has to be what? Permanent or temporary? Temporary. Temporary. On the other hand, what you do inside your sukkah is what? Temporary or permanent? Has to act like permanent. Has to act like it's permanent. So which one is it? You're driving me crazy, Miss Daisy. What's going on over here? Right? On the one hand, you're telling me, I don't know, that was a new, that was a new line. I trotted it out, Mark. I saw your expression. I apologize. Um, on the one hand, <laughs> I'm assuming everyone else's expression was also horrifying. Yeah, probably. Right, probably. On the one hand, we say that your sukkah has to be temporary, not permanent. Don't build it too high. Temporary, temporary, temporary. On the other hand, we say, but don't bring in the plasticware. It's got to be permanent. You're driving me crazy. Is it temporary or is it permanent? So you can say, no, no. Okay, when it comes to the structure, temporary. When it comes to the activities inside the structure, permanent. Thank you very much. You're still driving me crazy. I mean, so, huh? showing that we live there. You're showing that you live there. So, so you're living, but it's a temporary structure. There's got to be some deep-seated, deeper rationale behind this. It's kind of worth threading a needle here. It's like, it's got to be, the, the, the walls have to be uh, temporary, but the activities have to be of the permanent nature. In other words, your walls can't be like your home, but your, 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 um, your um, crystal needs to be like, like it's at home. Like, what the? Did you bring a projector? We've I've done that before. I called it screen in the green. I love it. Absolutely. We've done we've done film screenings in that inside the sukkah. Also, it's a great place to do like a pizza party. You call it pizza in the hut. Yeah, legit. <laughs> you know when you roll sushi, those little sushi roller things, little mini schach right there. You put them up. Then you just throw it on top. You just throw it on top. Yeah. It's like, oh, got some extra schach. Oh, no, why is your avocado dripping down at some point? Some later point when it starts raining. What's all this green? You, oh, oh, interesting. First of all, you get wet. Second of all, when it rains. Second of all, you, so Chabad custom, Chabad is a bit hardcore, as you may have noticed. Right. Very, very serious. So Chabad, most people will go inside when it rains, but Chabad stays in the sukkah. But on the, on the other side, on the flip side, Chabad doesn't sleep in the sukkah. Oh, really? You win some, you lose some. So cold, cold, drippy soup. But I guess you can sleep in the We do. So I'll tell you, most Chabadniks, even if the rain gets heavy, you just you. First of all, you can go inside until it stops raining and come back outside. It's like, do I need the soup right now? I can wait. I can wait a few minutes. Second of all. You hunker down, you kind of, you know, you, you get, I don't know what this is, I'm, like, it's a hood or something, you get a hood on, you put some rain gear, and that's it, and you eat, and it's an experience and a story that the kids remember. I don't know, it's a good experience. But anyway, getting back to this, again, I, I'm pointing out the, maybe it's not a paradox, but it's a duality when it comes to the sukkah. On the one hand, it needs to be a temporary structure. On the other hand, it has to have a permanence of activities inside your sukkah, temporary and permanent at the same time. What does that mean? To understand this, let's go, let's continue and, 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 and talk about more ideas and more themes. And so we're going to continue with text number four. Now, text number four is a story of the Maggot of Mizrich. Now, before we read the story, I want to give you, and I'll read it. It's a bit of a long story. I'm going to read the story. Before we, we read the story, I want to give you a little bit of background. Um, and the background goes like this. The Hasidic movement was founded in the late 1600s and early 1700s. The founder of the Hasidic movement was a rabbi who was known as the Baal Shem Tov. Um, not to be confused with the band called the Baal Shem Tones, 
which is an actual, which is an actual band. Really? Absolutely. It's uh, it's out of uh, Sandy Springs, actually. Anyway, so Jewish band, yes. Yeah. 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 Michael and Lynn Cates. That's a cute Absolutely. Name. Yeah. So back to the story. Baal Shem Tov was the founder of the Hasidic movement. He had many students and many disciples. But the one that really was the, I guess you would call him like the main disciple or the one who carried on, uh, you know, the torch of the Hasidic movement, leading the Hasidic movement, was a rabbi whose name was Rabbi Dov Bear. He was, you know, he lived most of his life in a city called Mizrich. And he's known as the Maggid of Mizrich. The Maggid means like the... Well, I mean, the literal translation would be like the preacher, but we don't really usually use that for Jews. But it's like the Maggid would be the orator, the speaker, the preacher of Mizrich. So that's who, uh, back of the social home. So that is where um, this, story takes, uh, this story takes place. Um, the Maggid of Mizrich wasn't always famous. But, and this story will take place uh, before he got famous. Just so you know, as far as timeline-wise, so again, it was the Baal Shem Tov. His name was Rabbi Yisrael, known as the Baal Shem Tov, the, man, uh, the, 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 the master of a good name. His student, primary student, was the Maggot of Mizrich. The Maggot also had many students who started many different Hasidic um, movements. One of those students was the Alter Rebbe, Rabbi Shneir Zaman of Liadi, the founder of Chabad. So Chabad is at the third generation of the Hasidic movement. That's when the Chabad branch really begins. That's just by way of, uh, of context. So now I'm going to read the story that takes place with the Maggid before he became famous. All right, text four. Among the followers of Rabbi Yisrael Baal Shem Tov, founder of the Hasidic movement, was a Jew who worked the land in a small farming village near Mizrich. Parenthetically, uh, back in the old country, many, many Jews were farmers, and many rabbis encouraged their congregants, or the, the people to be farmers, to live off the land. That way they would have some security, etc. Let's back inside. The Baal Shem Tov had a special empathy for these simple rural Jews, whom he held in high regard for their wholesomeness, integrity, and unequivocal faith in God. So whenever the, the above-mentioned villager would come to spend the Shabbat with his Rebbe, the Baal Shem Tov, he would be accorded a most gracious and affectionate welcome. At the conclusion of one such visit, the Baal Shem Tov requested of him, please, on your way home, stop by Mizrich. I want you to give my regards to one of my closest and most illustrious disciples, the scholarly and pious Rabbi Dov Bear. Now, I already told you who this was, the Maggot of Mizrich, but this story takes place before he was famous. The villager was overjoyed to be of service to his beloved Rabbi. As soon as he arrived in Mizrich, he began to inquire after the great Rabbi Dov Bear. But no one seemed to know of a great Rabbi Dov Bear among the town's scholars and mystics. Finally, someone suggested that he try a certain Reb Bear an impoverished school teacher who lived on the edge of town. There was no Rabbi Dovber, but they knew what there was one guy. He was a poor man. He taught kids. His, they called him Reb Bear. So the villager was that. That was the guy. The villager was directed to an alley in the poorest section of town. Along both sides of the muddy path stood row upon row of dilapidated hovels, leaning upon one another for support. There he found the schoolteacher's house, an ancient rickety hut with broken panes occupying the better half of its tiny windows. Inside, a scene of heart-rending poverty met his eyes. A middle-aged man sat on a block of wood at a table consisting of a rough plank set upon other wooden blocks. Before him sat rows of hater children on school benches, also 
ingenious contraptions of planks and blocks, but the teacher's majestic face left no doubt in the villager's mind that he had indeed found his man. This must have been the Rabbi Dover. No one called him Rabbi, Rebber, a simple guy, but he could tell this guy was not, not simple at all. Rabbi Dover greeted his visitor warmly and begged his forgiveness. Perhaps his guest could return later in the day when he had finished teaching his students. When the villager returned that evening, the hut's classroom furniture had disappeared. The planks and blocks had now been rearranged as beds for the teacher's children. Rabbi Dober sat upon the lone remaining block, immersed in a book which he held in his hands. Rabbi Dober thanked his guests for bringing word regards from the Rebbe and invited him to sit, pointing to a table-turned-bed nearby. At this point, the villager could no longer contain himself. Outraged at the crushing poverty about him, he burst out, Rabbi Dover, what can I say? How can you live like this? I myself am far from wealthy, but at least in my home, you will find, thank God, the basic necessities, some chairs, a table, beds for the children. Indeed, said Rabbi Dover, but why don't I see your furniture? How do you manage without it? What do you mean? Says the man. Do you think that I schlep my furniture along wherever I go? Listen, when I travel, I make do what, with, with what's available. But at home, a person's home is, different, is a different matter altogether. But aren't we all travelers in this world, said Rabbi Dober. At home, oh yes, at home, it is a different matter altogether. That's the end of the story. So this story, I remember I heard this story as a kid, and it was always told in a, in a very specific context. The story is basically impressing upon us that we live this life and we think it's permanent, but it's really temporary. Relative to the age of the soul that we possess, this moment in time where the soul is in this body is, is, is a blip, is a, is, a tiny, is a tiny fragment of time. Relative to the, to the, to the large expanse of the, of, the, of the life of the soul. And so the Magnum is rich, was teaching this fellow, who by the way, this fellow was also not a wealthy man. He was a farmer, he was a villager, he wasn't like some huge businessman, he was a simple guy. And yet, even the simple guy turned to this rabbi and said, where's all your stuff? And the rabbi says to him, where's all your stuff? I'm traveling, I'm also traveling. That's an attitude going through life. Do we need it? Are we traveling through? We're traveling, do we need to pack so heavy? When I say pack, I don't mean when we're actually traveling, I mean when we're living. Do we need to pack so heavy? We're traveling, it's a perspective. On, on, on life. That's one story. This is a tale of two stories. But then we have a story that speaks to the opposite theme with the same rabbi. Take a look at text number five. This is going to be powerful. All right, give me one second. Take a look at text number five. And Joel, if you don't mind reading this one, please take it away. Oh, oh one, and one second. This, this is a letter. This text is an excerpt from a letter as you see underneath text five, it says the Rebbe, right? So it's a letter that the Rebbe wrote to somebody who recently bought a house. And he, the Rebbe wishes this guy good luck on his new house and quotes a story from the same rabbi, the Magad of Mizrich, that speaks to the opposite theme. Take it away. I'm happy that you have found a suitable home and I hope that you and your wife will feel good there using the time appropriately to improve your health situation. For a Jew, bodily health leads to soul health. The Magid of Mezrich's son, Rabbi Abraham the Angel, strongly advocated a lifestyle of fasting and punishing the body and was generally detached from the material world. 
his father, the Magid, would often take him to the ta take him to task and try to persuade him against serving God in such a way. The father wrote to his son, a small hole in the body creates a gaping hole in the soul. So here the Rebbe is, is speaking to this, um, to this individual who just bought a new home. And he says, I hope your new home brings you good health and blessings. And then he quotes a story, a story that happens with this Rebbe, the Magad of Mizritch, the second, the second uh, leader of the Hasidic movement, where his own son, Rebbe Avram Hamalach, the Avram the angel, he was called so because he was like an angel, he, you know, he, he was very uh, minimalistic in, in materialism. But he writes to his own son, the Magad of Mizritch, writes to his own son, don't be so minimalistic because akleine lechele in guf machta greisa lechel in der neshama. A small hole in the body leads to a big hole in the soul. Is that what he's trying to create? He's trying to tell. No, 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 no. That's a bad thing. He's telling that's a bad thing. It's a bad thing to deprive your body because if you, if you, um, a deficiency, even a small deficiency of taking care of your body can lead to a large deficiency in taking care of your soul. In other words, what does it seem like he's advocating here? And this, the maggot seems to be advocating what? Deprivation or non deprivation? Non-deprivation. And whereas in the previous story, it seems like he was advocating for deprivation. So we have a bit of a country. Now you could say, maybe one story took place before the other. Maybe originally, when he was not known by anyone, maybe originally he lived a life of austerity, which is why his own son adopted that practice. And then when he got older, he told the son, by the way, I realize in retrospect, this is not good because if you don't take care of your body, eventually it's going to also take a toll on your spiritual health as well. You could say that. But we're going to take a different approach. That these are not contradictory stories or stories that are chronologically one before the other and there was a, a paradigm shift in understanding between the two, but rather these two represent different pathways in serving Hashem and serving God. And each one has, the, has its place, but ultimately there's a way to synthesize these two paths. And when we learn about the synthesis, we can then understand the duality with regards to the laws of the sukkah. All right. In other words, these stories with the Magid will be the key to understanding about the sukkah, whether it is meant to be a, an impermanent or a permanent dwelling. But first, let's stick, let's, let's, re, let's, let's get back to the story of the Magid. Again, in one story, he seems to be advocating against materialism. We're just passing through. Who needs all this furniture? Who needs all this stuff? That's on the one hand. On the other hand, he says, don't forget to take care of your body. Well, which one is it? Materialism or no materialism? Perspective number one. I'm going to have a tale of two perspectives. Perspective number one. Perspective number one says that the more attuned to spirituality you are, the less you will care about the details of materialism. In other words, if you're focused on God, purpose, meaning, spirituality, prayer, mitzvah, helping someone else out, then the fact that your shoes are unpolished, the fact that whatever, whatever, or whatever that is, is not such a big deal. So why the focus on the materialism of the sukkah? Oh, hold on, wait, wait, wait. Hold on, we're not answering all the questions yet. I'm, I'm, we're building up slowly. And I'm going to give you two perspectives. So this is perspective number one. Perspective number one is, the more your head is in the space of spirituality, the less your head is in the space of material details. I'll give you a simple example. 
Forget even for a moment spiritual versus physical. Think about ideas versus emotions. The more you're into ideas, the less, okay, not always, but you know, when, when, you're, when you're thinking about ideas, so you're not necessarily aware of the stuff that's happening around you. You can get lost. You ever have that experience where you're learning something, reading something, and hours are going by, and, and like, I'll tell you, so my kids, if they're involved in an activity, this is anecdotally, if they're involved in an activity that they're very engrossed in, and then I tell them like, okay, time to close the book, put down the book or whatever it is, suddenly they're like, oh, I'm so hungry. One second. Were you not hungry a second ago, right? Were you not hungry a half an hour ago? You're reading for two hours, right? All, by the way, all of this is good. This is not, you know, none of this is a negative. It's all positive. They're reading for two hours. But once they put down the book, now they're starving. How come they weren't starving before? Well, they were. They were hungry before, but they didn't, they, they, they didn't feel it. Why didn't they feel it? Because they they their head was in a book. They got lost in a book. So you don't notice your appetite when you're engrossed in another behavior. You know, there are people who... I, I think I recently read a story, and, and, and it echoes an, uh, um, uh, an old Hasidic story. I think there was somebody who had brain surgery recently, but couldn't be put under, and so they had some classical music playing. Did anybody read this story recently? No. There was some sort of classical music playing through a brain surgery, something like that. Anyway. They show how it stimulated different parts of the brain? Is that the thing? It was about something like that. Yeah, I think, I think they had to be awake yeah. when they were doing this procedure. And so they played music and whatever, and maybe, and maybe it distracted it, or maybe it was for the test. But it echoes a Hasidic story where a rabbi, for whatever reason, he was a Hasidic rabbi, couldn't be put under. And he said instead, they, the Hasidim should stand around and sing the Hasidic tunes, and that put him in a state where he could, he could you know, endure the, uh, the pain of the procedure. The point is that when, you, when we're distracted with something, you might not notice something else. That's the way it works. You're not going to notice your appetite when you're engrossed in some other activity. When that activity is done, oh, I'm hungry. When you're involved in spirituality, it's a different reality. When you're involved in spirituality, you're not so, you're not so attentive to the, to the materialistic. You're not so attentive to the physical stuff. This explains. So that's perspective number one. We're going to go a, a deeper perspective soon, but that's perspective number one. This explains a very unusual text from the book of Kings. Um, I'm going to put this up on the screen for everyone on Zoom. And everyone here, please open, please turn to page um, 204 or text number 6. Take a look at text 6. I'm going to read this. This is the story of when the first holy temple was built. Who built the holy temple? Solomon. Solomon. King Solomon built the holy temple, the first temple. It was designed and drafted by his father, King David. God tells King David, God tells David, you're not going to build it. Because you have too much blood on your hands. He was a warrior. He was a general. He, he, he had to take the lives of many people. God says, my house is a house of peace. It has to be built by a man of peace. So therefore your son, whose name was Shlomo. Shlomo comes from the word Shalom. Shalom means peace. He will build the temple. And indeed he builds it. And they have a party. They have a, Not a party. They have a celebration. Take a look at text number six. On the eighth day of the celebration post-ribbon cutting of the temple. He dismissed the people, the king dismissed the people, and they blessed the kings and went to their tents, rejoicing and delighting of heart for all the goodness that the Lord had wrought for David, his servant, and for Israel, his people. Take a look at this. 
that where do the people go? They were all sameach, they were all happy. Where do they go? Back to there? Back to there, help me out. Where do they go? Yes. To their tents. But I mean, they, they traveled to the Norwegian. One second. Their tents? They went back to their tents? They lived in houses. They lived in homes. What's this business? They went back to their tents. Who was living in a tent in Jerusalem? So, Joel, you're saying it refers to the people that live far that were staying in some Motel 6. That's not what it says. It says the people went back to their tents. Who was living in a tent? They, it, it's Jerusalem. The temple was built in an urban environment. They went back to their homes, not their tents. Even if some people went to their tents, the majority that lived around there went to their homes. There's an incredible explanation. And I'll tell it to you outside and then we'll read it inside. The explanation is like this. When you're standing at the inauguration of the temple, when you're witnessing the spirituality of the temple, then what do you think about your home? It's a tent. It's a tent. So when your head, when, when, you're to, when you're so excited about, about spirituality, about God's home, you come home, it's like, oh, this thing. Eh. Not, that, not that you're upset about your house, not that you're, not from a negative place, but from a materialism is not so important in my life place. It's like, <laughs> do I, do I, like how, I was just by the temple, I just saw miracles and divine energy and I was so inspired. Do I really care that my cutlery is silver or gold or pewter? I don't even know what the color pewter is, right? Or that it has the floral design or the modern design with the straight edges. I mean, really? Now, again, I'm not putting any of this down. God forbid. Everyone's got the stuff that they like. But the point is, when you're so excited about spirituality, you're, you're, in that moment, you're probably thinking, you know what, on second thought, this is not that important. Take a look at text number seven. Take a look at text seven. Beautiful text from the previous Rebbe, an explanation on why it says that they came home to their tents. King Solomon's reign was the most fortunate period the Jewish people ever enjoyed. Everyone was wealthy and comfortable, both materially and spiritually. That said, accustomed as they were to being in the temple and witnessing godliness, as is related in detail throughout our sages' statements, the firm consensus of every Jewish man and woman was that physicality isn't a true home. All of the majestic buildings and sweeping courtyards were but temporary tents. Not so important. This entire physical world with all of its material pleasures is just a fleeting tent that moves from place to place, a temporary structure erected for just one night or maximum a few days. It isn't a true house. A house is something else entirely. And the Jews came to that understanding during King Solomon's reign. Though they were rich and healthy when they came to the Holy Temple, they realized the truth. Physical comfort is but a fleeting tent. Again, that's the theme, that's theme number one of the, right, I told you we're gonna have two themes. Theme number one is, when, you're, when you see spirituality, when you see God, everything else is so temporary. Everything else seems so flimsy. Everything else is a tent. Ah, you have a $5 million mansion with, um, somebody once told me that their dream home is to build a home with a, um, no, uh, yeah, maybe, with a pool, what do you think, uh, like around the whole house, what would that be called? Um, like a lazy river. Yeah. A lazy river around the house where you can get into a, you get into a, like an inner tube or whatever it is, and you go, it would be amazing, right? And you go around, and I guess there's a drawbridge over it, whatever it is. Sounds great. 
But when you're in the temple, when you see the Beis Hamikdash, when you see the holiness, when you see the divine energy, even when you come home to that amazing home, you realize, you know, at the end of the day, it's just a tent. Ah, it's, it's a nice tent. It's a tent with a moat. It's a tent with a with a um, you know with a, with a lazy river. But at the end of the day, it's a tent. It's a tent. Okay, so that's one perspective. And by the way, this is the perspective of the Maggot's first story. What does the Maggot say? Remember the Maggot is rich? The guy comes to him and says, where's all your furniture? He says, where's your furniture? I'm traveling. I'm also traveling. What's that mean? When you're, when you're thinking, when your head is in spirituality, then, you don't, then everything else is not as important. Not that it's not important. It's not as important as it would be otherwise. That's perspective number one. But then Judaism shares with us an even deeper perspective. That's the basic perspective. But then there's an even deeper perspective. And that is, when you're really attuned to spirituality, and you're really attuned to God, then you realize something that is absolutely mind-blowing and paradigm-shifting. And that is, not that materialism is not important, or like a tent, or on a journey, we don't need it. But no, the key to fulfilling what God wants us to do on this earth is through material resources. You need, you need materialism. How else can you give tzedakah if you don't have money? How else can you have people over for Shabbat if you don't have a table with chairs? Who else is going to, who's going to come over, right? And they need the good cutlery. They need the stuff with the flowers in it. Oh, this is nice. And Shabbos, everyone's going to be impressed. You need a good car that hits zero to 60 in 1.9 seconds to get the shul faster. Okay, maybe not. Maybe that last one is not exactly correct. But the point is, you, the deeper perspective is not the more you're involved in spirituality, the more you realize how, how meaningless or how less than meaningful materialism is. It goes the other way. The more you're really steeped in spirituality, the more you realize how materialism is actually, it's the currency. It's the divine currency to make a difference in this world. You do need materialism, but not for its own sake, but for a higher sake. That's the deeper perspective. Take a look. Take a look. Oh, I think, um, so we, we're, I'm going to skip text eight. I'm going to skip, oh, we're up to text number nine. So, but before we read text nine, nine I want to just make sure we have clarity on the distinction between these two approaches. Approach number one, approach number one is that because I'm so in love with spirituality, I fell out of love with materialism. The deeper approach is because I'm so in love with God, I realize that God's, that the physical is actually very important. Not for its own sake, but for a higher purpose. Um, I'm looking here at some comments. Two-story sukkah is perfect. A house is not home, right? A moat with swans, yes. Uh, good. <laughs> All right, got it. Um, so back to the idea, yeah? So the more we're attuned to spirituality, the more we realize how important the physicality is, which explains a very curious story in the Torah. So when it comes to Abraham, Abraham is known, of course, as the first Jew. And Abraham, the Torah tells us, became very wealthy. He goes down to Egypt. He's hanging out with Pharaoh. His wife gets abducted. Remember the story? His wife gets abducted. And then she gets released. But after she gets released, they get a good payout. And he becomes very wealthy. And throughout the narratives, Abraham becomes wealthier and wealthier. And the question is, what does he need so much money for? Isn't he such a spiritual dude? What does he need all this materialism for? Well, you know what he did all day? What did Abraham do? We know what he did. He had the first Chabad house. 
right? It was open on all sides. He had a tent. Literally, he had a tent that was open on all sides. And what did he do? Everyone who wanted a meal came in. And at that meal, he taught people about God. That's how he spread monotheism. That's how he taught people about the one God. Over a good brisket or, you know, sushi. Whatever it was, right? Whatever he served them. Over food. And, and the finest accommodations that the desert, that the, uh, you know, the desert uh, could allow, he taught people about monotheism, which means he used his material resources for a higher purpose. Text number nine, let's read this, Genesis 13. And Abram came up from Egypt, he and his wife, and all that was his, and Lot with him to the south. And Abraham, well, Abraham, this before his name changed, was very heavy with cattle, with silver, and with gold. And I love that expression, kaved ma'od. He was heavy with cattle. You know what we would call that today? Loaded, <laughs> right? Yeah. Lo- literally, he was loaded. Abraham was loaded with cattle, with silver, with gold. And cattle, that was like... I don't know. That was like a mark of wealth. You had a lot of cattle. You had a lot of money. You had a lot of wealth. Text 10a. Not only did he become rich, he was pursuing wealth. He says to his wife, please say that you are my sister in order that it go well with you, go well with me because of you and that my soul may live because of you. What does that mean? Take a look at the next page. Text 10b. Take a look at what Rashi says. 10b. In order that it go well with me because of you, they will give me gifts. Abraham wanted gifts. What is this? Abraham says to his wife, pretend you're my sister so that you'll get gifts and I'll get gifts. What, he wants gifts? No, what is this? What, 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 what? It's like, oh, if you're going to Florida, I, like, I collect snow globes. What is happening here? Like, I want you to go get gifts for me? Who the, who's like, where, where's that coming? Where's that perspective coming from? But when you understand something deeper and you realize that Abraham recognized that the currency of spirituality in this world is physical currency, well, then you understand why he needed currency in the literal sense. Text 11, and the Rebbe explains exactly what we've been saying. Abraham was very, was very wealthy with much gold and silver. This highlights his activity with transforming the holy sparks that are embedded in the material stuff of this world. In other words, he used the resources of this world, of Olam Haza, of this physical reality, for a higher purpose. And again, I just want to just make sure we're all set here with, on, on the same page. There's two perspectives and how we balance spiritual and material. One perspective, the lower perspective, the first perspective is the more spiritually uh, um, enlightened I am, the more I shun physicality. It's like the more levitating I do, the more trafe physical things are. Money is, etc. The deeper perspective is the more godly I get, the more I realize that this stuff, the material stuff, is actually very important. Not for its own sake, but for a higher purpose. To be utilized also for fulfilling God's will on earth. Does that make sense? Yeah? Okay, so two perspectives. Now, um, this brings us to text 12. Take a look at what the previous Rebbe says. He explains the challenge with wealth because it could be a deficit to us spiritually, or it could be an ally to our spirituality. Wealth is something that can either be the greatest or most disastrous thing that God created in this world. It presents one of the greatest tests one can experience. When one knows what to do with it, and use it to strengthen Judaism, and give to Torah endorsed charities, then they are truly blessed in this world and the next. But if they don't know how to use it appropriately and use it for matters not aligned with the Torah, woe is to them. In other words, there's two ways to experience materialism. One is for its own sake, 
Eh. But one is for a higher purpose. Aha. That's where that's that, and that's the ultimate. So here we have two perspectives. And these are symbolized in the two stories of the Maggot of Mizrich. Let's reset the story. Story number one. The Maggot is living a very austere, I think is the right word, very minimalistic lifestyle. This um, villager, farmer, visit, visits him. He's sitting on a plank of wood and he says, Rabbi, I don't get it. Where's all your stuff? Where's all your stuff? I'm traveling. I'm also traveling. That's the first perspective. The first perspective is that materialism is unnecessary. You don't need it. If you're involved in spirit, if you're teaching Torah to kids, who needs uh, cushions? Right? Who needs padding? You're good. Sit on a bench. Sit on the wood. You're fine. In, uh, in 770, which is the main Chabad, central Chabad, Lubavitch um, synagogue and yeshiva in Grand Heights. So everything's wood benches, like plain wood, like old school wood benches with tables, the whole deal. Um, we used to call it, you know, sitting, you know, hours each day studying. We used to call it bench pressing. But, but a bit different than, than the typical, uh, right? <laughs> also bench pressing. But getting back to the point, that's the first story. And that, if you're spiritual, then the physical becomes so unimportant and unnecessary. But the second story reveals the deeper idea. The second story, he tells his son, look, a small hole in the body can lead to a large hole in the soul. What does that mean? If you're not taking care of your physical health, or parallel to that, if you're not you know, working on getting material resources, then that ultimately is going to cost you spiritually as well. How can you do a mitzvah if you don't have health? How can you visit someone who needs a visit, needs a hug, if you don't have the energy to do so? How can you study Torah if you're tired or you're sick, God forbid? A small hole in the body is a large soul, a hole in the soul. You can't spiritually do what you need to do if your physical ducks are not lined up in a row, as it were. I don't know why that, that, uh, <laughs> that um, phrase came to mind. Right? If you don't have the physical stuff, whether it's the health or the resources, you can't do the spiritual stuff as well. And that's the deep idea. So now with all of this in mind and these two ideas, idea one and then idea two, which is much greater than idea one, now we can get back to the sukkah. Because we had a duality with the sukkah, as you recall. On the one hand, it needs to be a temporary edifice. The structure has to be temporary. Don't build it higher than, 20, than 30 feet. Higher than 30 feet, no, no good. It's trafe. It's not kosher. It's not trafe, but it's not kosher. Um, on the one hand. On the other hand, you have to do all your activities, all your permanent activities in the sukkah. What's the message? Message number one from the first law is make sure your sukkah is temporary. You know what that means? That means to make sure that your physical structure is not so permanent. Because when you're very spiritual in a spiritual space, you realize that your materialism, right, step one, is not so important. So make sure that your walls are, are shorter than 30 feet. Make sure that the material stuff is minimized, is only temporary. That's what it means to live a spiritual life. But then we have the second law. The second law that is that in this temporary structure, because really the world is this reality, the physical reality, this lifetime is only temporary. But within this temporary reality, we have to bring the good stuff in there. The good china, the good cutlery, the good crystal, the good, um, what's a famous uh, crystal company? Um, Waterford. Waterford crystal. Bring the good stuff in. Yeah. 
Don't drop it on the way to the sukkah. But on the but but bring the good stuff. And why? Because even or more more than even, precisely the good stuff, precisely the good stuff, the good resources. That's how you create a space for God in this world. It's through using all all the resources for a higher purpose. So again, we have again these dueling messages. On the one hand, don't get too caught up in the material stuff. But lest you think it's unimportant, bring in the good stuff. And that's the message that we can take away from Sukkot. Let's read a few texts that share this idea, and then we'll drive home the message in the, in the grand finale. Take a look at text 13. Here, here is how the Rebbe uh, phrases it. This entire world is not a permanent thing. In other words, the physical, this physical reality is not a permanent thing, rather a corridor leading to something better. Or as the Talmud states, the world is akin to a porch with three walls, a temporary structure like a sukkah that needs to only have three walls. This visual, visual indicates the sukkah-style religious service. A Jew must know that the world and its trappings are but fleeting and temporary. And again, if we pause right here, that's why the sukkah is built under 30 feet. That's why the roof of the sukkah has to allow the rain to fall through. If you have too much schach, I didn't mention, I should have mentioned this before. If you have such thick schach, schach is like the, 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 the stuff you throw on top as to act this roof. If it's so thick that it doesn't allow the, the rain through, it's not kosher. You have to be a little vulnerable. You have to be a little susceptible to the elements. Why? Because it indicates that this world, we think that this is all there is. This is still temporary and we're still vulnerable. That's message number one. But message number two, that's the big message. This very attitude compels a Jew to view the world and its trappings as insignificant. And then, step two, to use them exclusively, exclusively for divine, divine purposes. And in doing so, a Jew makes the temporary sukkah of this world into something permanent. In other words, they transform the material world that by default is akin to a temporary sukkah into a home for God, something very permanent. And that's the, the duality that we're, that, that's the needle that we're threading here um, in, in, the, in the observance of, of sukkahs, of the sukkah, and in our class tonight. And that is, and in our lives beyond, beyond tonight. And that is that on the one hand, we're supposed to look at the physical world as but a temporary structure. It's temporary. At the end of the day, how, how many decades are we around for? You know, we bless each other for 120 years in, in the lifetime of a soul that's who knows how, how, how many years old. 120 years, it's garnished, it's nothing. So on the one hand, we can look at this world and say, all right, take it easy. Do I need to have the lid? Uh, I, don't need the, I don't need all this stuff. I can live a simple life. But on the other hand, once we know that, the insignificance of the material, then we're going to be more motivated to use all of our material resources for a higher purpose. And then, of course, we need more materialism, but not for the materialism itself, but to make a permanent home for God on this world. That's where you blend the temporary and the permanent. And with this, we're going to skip text 14. Let's see if we want to do text 15, here we go. Yeah, text 15. This captures the perspective. In a spiritual life, Israel is an, is an uncompromising prince of God. Israel, not the, not the lamb, but Israel the Jew. He stares the mocker in the eye and lays all his cards on the table. These are my beliefs. These are my standards. These are my ethics. This is what I am. This is what I stand for. This is what I am here to teach the world. That is Israel. Israel is unflinching. But when it comes to his material existence, 
Jacob, two names, right? Israel and Jacob, same guy, two names. Jacob plays the field, but keeps his true objectives close to his chest. He will be scrupulously honest in his financial dealings, but he'll be utterly dishonest as to why he's in the business. He eats, drinks, and earns money. For all intents and purposes, he's a full-fledged participant in the give and take of physical life, but he's unwilling to relate to the material on its, on its, the material's terms, refusing to care, refusing to become involved, refusing to pursue it for its own sake. The Jew seeks the dew of heaven and the fat of the earth only to manipulate them to serve a higher end. First, he buys out his brother's stake in the spiritual, divorcing the mundane from any pretensions to import or significance. Then he disguises himself as a materialist and claims materialism's choices bits for his own purposes. This is a powerful idea. It's the visual of Jacob wearing Esau's clothing. Remember, he, wore, he put on his brother's uh, garments and took the blessing from his father, put on the hairy skins. What does that mean? He says, Yankee Tower is writing, we do the same thing when we go to work. We put on the skins of Asa. We wear the business suit like everyone else. But our intention is for a higher purpose. Our intention is to make a Kiddush Hashem, to sanctify God's name when we're doing business by doing it honestly. Our intention is to take the money and give some of it to tzedakah and support worthy causes. That's our intention. Our intention when doing business is not just to feed ourselves, but also to fulfill our purpose. That's what it means to dress up in the, the garments of Esau, in the garments of Esau. We dress up in the business suit, but inside we're still Jacob. We're doing it for a higher purpose. And that's what we're doing with the sukkah as well. It's a temporary structure. Materialism is not the end all and be all. But at the same time, we're leveraging the material resources for a higher purpose. And we're utilizing that for a divine yield and profit. And so at the end of the day, the sukkah reminds us, when we see the sukkah outside here, when we see it in a few days, or maybe it's already built by your house already, when we see the sukkah, meditate on this. This structure is temporary. This world is temporary. My life is temporary. We're all vulnerable. We're all here today and hopefully tomorrow as well, but we don't live forever. That's one meditation, and it's a sobering meditation. But at the same time, remember this. Our job in this temporary environment is to infuse it with the permanence of the divine. So in your temporary hut, bring in the good dishes. In this temporary lifetime, Bring in the mitzvahs, because that is what's really permanent and truly eternal. Thank you for joining me tonight for third edition of the boot camp. Don't forget to uh, share these words of Torah with your family and friends as you sit around your Sukkot tables. And I um, hope you enjoyed it all. And uh, questions, comments? Pleasure. Thank you. Um, I make all is recorded. Send me an email and I'll hook you up with the recordings. They're all posted. Audio and video of the first two sessions are up. Um, by the way, just in case anyone ever wants to catch this stuff, our, um, our handle on SoundCloud is the Torah Center ATL. The podcast for audio only is called Torah Unraveled. Torah Unraveled is the name of the should be a link on, on one to the other and the other to the other. The other. There, I, there might be. Okay. There might be. Okay. Um, and then the YouTube channel is youtube.com slash the Torah Center ATL. So what, Torah Unraveled without any hyphen? Torah, well, it's, it's a podcast. No, that's not, that's not a URL. Torah Unraveled would be when you type in like to any podcast um, thing, you just type in the two words, Torah Unraveled, and it'll come up. Um, yeah, so that's how you get the audio. 
The video is on YouTube, the Torah Center ATL. And so every day you're going to eat outside? Every day we eat outside, yeah. From Sukkot for the full week. But you're not um, going to sleep outside. Chabad does it, many do. Many, many Jews do. Chabad specifically doesn't sleep in the Sukkot. And that's for, for another reason. Chabad, you are a, a I am Chabad. Rabbi. I'm a Chabad rabbi. Okay, but your kids, do they sleep outside? They do not sleep outside. No. Where are My kids, but other, other families that have other customs do. Because I would, I mean, it's perfect weather. It's great weather. Outside. By the way, in Atlanta this time of year, it is stunning. In Pittsburgh some years. Oh, we're getting to October. In some years in Pittsburgh, Sukkot, Sukkot, it was, I remember snow in the Sukkot some years. Legit. Legit. They say that if the schach doesn't lie with snow in, then it's not kosher. Yeah. They also say that if you don't see the shadow of your schach, it's going to be a very long winter. No, I'm kidding. No one says that. No one, no one says that. That's Punxsutawney Phil. It's also Pennsylvania. That's Pennsylvania. No, 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 no. It has to be open. It also has to be organic. Uh, I, I mean, natural materials. Yeah, you can use branches, leaves. Bamboo, right. but you can't use plastic. It can't be synthetic. I'm telling you, I could but the best, the really best schach that I ever saw was when I was in Florida. I was I spent a year in the yeshiva in Miami in South Beach, and um, I wasn't there for the holiday. I went home. I went to Pittsburgh right. for Sukkot that year. It was 1999. But I did help build some sukkahs in the community while we were there. We we had you know we were a bunch of yeshiva students there, so we were helping out before the holiday. And the best, they had the best schach. They had these palm. I don't know, fronds. They, they are no, no. You didn't have to weave them. There were these like they they came. It almost looked like a massive lollipop, like big yeah, green things and like a little bit of a stick. I, you, I guess how they cut it. Yeah. You just you literally just toss it on top of your sukkah. Boom, boom, boom. They cover the beautiful color, beautiful coverage. You know, rain can still slip through. You're good to go. Now, I mean, I I use the. It always feels like cheating. I use the bamboo mats. You ever see those? Yeah. Ah, uh, what I yeah. What am I gonna do? At ho- back in Pittsburgh when I grew up, we had actual bamboo um, rods, bamboo yeah. poles. Yeah, we. My grandfather stored them in his garage. He had a little like, built a little hook like there. Opening for your ceiling with a bamboo mat. I know. Like I don't know. Bamboo mats feels like feels like mm, feels a little bit cheating. Yeah, they're like woven together. You just roll it out. It's like ooh, it's a little too easy. A little too easy. <laughs> and there's no green when you use that. Also in Pittsburgh, we used to have, so we had bamboo. We had bamboo like poles. We put them out, you know, we put them out. Um, and then on top of that, throw branches. we threw pine. Was it pine? Pine, pine leaves. Pine leaves. And then the pine needles, branches, yeah. pine branches. And then when it rained or when, when, it was, uh, when it was windy, you would get pine needles in your soup. But I think that was good. It's yeah. now chicken pine chicken soup. Pine, yeah. Chicken pine. Yeah. But you do have to be out there when it rains. Look, my, so typically in my family what happens is my wife and kids, the younger kids will go inside if it rains, you know, and then we'll be out there. Or we'll go inside and then come back when it's, I, I don't know, it doesn't usually rain for that long in Atlanta, right? It's usually pretty right. quick. I mean, I, I don't want to jinx anything. Yeah, <laughs> Pull up this recording. It rained for seven days. No, God forbid, right? Or yeah, right. whatever. You had rainouts? Oh my God. No, I'm, listen, there have been years where it's rained a lot, but I don't know, you just go, you hunker down. I wear, I'll wear like a raincoat. Yeah, I I'll have a hood. You can't wear a raincoat 
No, you can. Okay. Yeah. Okay, cool. You can wear a hood. You just can't have like an objective, um, like umbrella right, right, situation right. in your sukkah. Yeah. So you um, could actually probably get a nice little suit made and raincoat here. <laughs> and then, then I'll leave my hat inside, <laughs> put on a little hood, a and that's it. And, and you just, again, you kind of just lean over your bowl. Uh -huh. I don't know why I'm thinking soup or your plate or whatever. And you just eat. You eat quickly. <laughs> then you sing in the rain. Chabad custom doesn't sleep outside. The reason for the Chabad custom not to sleep, in, not sleep outside in the sukkah is, as one of the Chabad rabbis once said, how can you sleep in the space where the supernal auras of Bina are shining? It's a Kabbalistic term, right? The, the Makif and the Bina. So essentially in a sukkah, it's a very lofty mitzvah. And it says in Kabbalah that the light, the spiritual radiance of these levels of Makif and the Bina, this high level of, of Bina is shining. And so one of the Rebbeim said, in such light, such spiritual light, how could you go to sleep? Imagine if the physical lights were on so bright you couldn't sleep. Or imagine if you were, maybe a better example would be in the presence of, 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 of a king. You know, could you actually just say, all right, I'm out, I'm going to sleep here now. Like you wouldn't sleep. So because he couldn't sleep, so he slept inside. And because one of the Rebbes couldn't sleep, so a chassid of a Rebbe is also not like, oh, well, I don't feel it, so that's, I'm going to curl up here and start snoring in the sukkah. It's not, it's not a, so it's, 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 it's a thing that, that Chabad specifically does not do. Okay. Good to see you, Joel. All right. Laila Tov. Chag Sameach. I, yeah, I mean, listen, have I, have I ever been outside in the sukkah and kind of like dozed off? Absolutely. <laughs> have I ever brought a mattress or a comforter or a sleeping bag or pillow or a bed frame into the sukkah? No. Well, you haven't always been a rabbi. So when you were a kid, did you ever sleep in the sukkah? I did not sleep in the sukkah when I was a kid. <laughs> I know, I know. But many, 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 many Jews do. Most, most have the custom to sleep in the sukkah. You know, we live, like our backyard is a little bit foresty. Okay, so that's where... So I don't know, maybe bears. Well, I'm kidding. Okay, so <laughs> I, 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 I'm a sleeper outside because I love the, the, the cool air and stuff. So, but I don't want to sleep out in the tent in, a, um, in the woods because I am afraid of bears. So I will sleep in people's backyards. In my nice. And I have a really nice mattress, and I have a um, down comforter, and I, I mean it's really nice. I bring the nice stuff there. There you go. Do you sleep during the day? No, just uh, <laughs> no, I, I one time. I went camping about a year and a half ago, maybe uh, two years now. I don't remember. And we had an incident with a bear. Here in Atlanta, I mean, here, here in Georgia. Yes, we left food out, and uh, yeah, next thing you know, yeah, we learned. I know many of you know the story. We learned a very important lesson. Do yeah. not leave food out. Leave we were grilling. It's like we'll clean up in the morning. No, 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 no. Very bad idea. Super bad idea. Yeah. The bears were there for hours licking every surface clean. You're lucky they didn't rip your, they'll rip the car door off. Well, but here the yeah. bears here, they're apparently not as dangerous as the bears that are uh, other areas. I refer, I prefer to refer to them as the bears. The bears. The bears. Remember that? The bears. But, but I don't think you're going to have any um, bears in the Yeah, in Sandy Springs. Sandy Springs. I think we'll be bear, bear safe. Might we have, have seen deer. Yeah, yeah, we've yeah, we've seen deer. deer. Yeah. I am not deer. shooting any deer. No, 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 no. That is not. That is the last yeah. thing I'm doing. I'm just. 
when I see deer, I, I freeze. I'm like a rabbi in headlights. <laughs> you saw what I did there. <laughs> oh, man. Can't take me anywhere. <laughs> oh, man. All right. We're going to close out. Dr. Maxi, great to see you. Mark, great to see you. Mom, great to see you. Alex, good to see you. Joy, great to see you. Lisa and David, great to see you. Let me see if I missed any. Um, oh, here we go. Mark, oh, I missed all these, I missed all these uh, things. Was the Bashantav against asceticism? Same Shoresh has covered. Okay, great question. Add those to your next. Okay, so here's what I'm thinking. Wait, can you add those to your next message? I'm not sure what that is, what that means. I think he was saying when you were giving the references to the Shul Cloud and all of the handles on like YouTube and like that. Oh. At the links to the recordings and all. I think that's what they were referring to. Yes, that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> I'm like, oh, because I'm not. Like, what was the timestamp 10 minutes ago? What was they saying? What was, yeah, it's good. Good, good. Yeah, I will send those out. Please, God. Uh, maybe we'll do a dedicated email that has all the links. And then Mark's question, Sebastian against, yeah, so it's kind of, it's a good question. In other words, the Hasidic masters were often very minimalistic, but like the Rebbe was of the opinion that it's a worthy challenge to have materialism and, and to, in other words, that we shouldn't be running away from this. I mean, the, this entire class is really framed in the Rebbe's approach, which is that on the one hand, you know, we start off the journey by thinking, um, the spiritual journey by, oh, spirituality is good and materialism overrated. And then we realize as we get more and more attuned to what Hashem wants, it's like, well, well no, I actually need resources to uplift to divine for a divine purpose. So you can't, how do you transform, how, how do you act as a spiritual alchemist turning gold to spirit. That's, I just invented that idea, spiritual alchemy. Right, how do you, I hope it works. How do you, how do you become a spiritual alchemist turning gold, right, gelt into, into spiritual energy if you don't have the gold, to, if, you, if you don't have gold? If, you're, if all you have is a wood bench, like in the Rebbe's worldview, I mean, and maybe it was very progressive because you know, the Rebbe was a very forward thinker, um, clearly, on, many, on, many level, on every level, like if you don't have if you don't have resources, how are you going to have a global impact? How, how are you going to get? How are you going to? How is that going to work? How are you going to impact people if you don't have if you don't have a microphone? I mean, yeah, like what's? I mean, in the business world, it's no margin, no mission. There you go. Right. You, ha, you, you have to have. So so to, when you ask the question mark, like was the Bashemtov against? Oh, against aestheticism. I would say yes. Yes, ultimately yes. And even though we have the story from the Magid where he was living impoverished, but again, that's, that's still step one. Step two is then you can't have a small hole in the body because that's going to lead to a big hole. That's going to lead to a big deficit. If you, if you neglect the material stuff, stuff, then you're really neglecting the spiritual stuff. You're going to lose out on all that stuff. By the way, the Baal Shem Tov did famously teach, uh, to, uh, um, the Baal Shem Tov himself taught this idea, a beautiful teaching on the verse that says, when you see the enemy of your donkey struggling under its load and you're thinking to, to you know, just keep on walking, no, you have to stop and you have to help. And he said that the simple explanation is even if it's your enemy, you have to have compassion on the animal. That's a simple understanding. The deeper understanding is the donkey is your donkey. It's the inner donkey. 
And that means your material, your, your animal soul. And you might think that it's your enemy. It's not that your, don- your enemy's donkey. You might think that your donkey, your inner donkey, is your enemy, the enemy of your soul. And you might think, therefore, to starve it or to neglect it or to shun it. You have to work with it. Vashem was pro-working with your material, with your physical, with your body, and not breaking your body. By the way, many great spiritual, you know, Jewish spiritual leaders had a path of, of spiritual, of, um, of physical, almost you can call it self-harm. They would leave their homes and they would wander in the self, self-induced exile to be more spiritual. And, and they would, you know, there are stories where guys would sit, find ant, you know, red ant uh, things, um, sit on them and to just get bitten, just like to pain the body, because that was breaking the body to allow the soul to be uncovered. And we do that once a year. We just did it. That's what Yom Kippur is. You, you, um, you sacrifice the body almost, not obviously, but you, you deprive, that's a better word, you deprive the body for a day, 24 hours. Right? No food, no drink, no, no physical pleasures. For one, you know, no perfumes, no, no bathing. Like you, don't, you just don't take care of the body for 24 hours. But that's once a year. And the rest of the year? That, so that's not a normative, so it's not the normative Jewish practice. There is a perspective. It's almost like, and I didn't say this tonight, because I, I don't want to lose anybody in the step one, step two, and then step three. It's almost like the third step is, not really the third step, but the third point, which I didn't mention yet, which I'm mentioning right now, is that the only way to get to step two is through step one. The only way you're going to have the perspective that, all, that I'm going to be a spiritual alchemist and turn my gold into spirit is if you started off by saying that the gold is not that important. That's the only way. Because if you start off, if you're living a normal material life, which is, oh, I want to I be wealthy. I want to I have the good stuff. I want to enjoy the good stuff for myself. Then you're not a spiritual alchemist. The only way to get a step two is if you, already, if you had a step one. The, if, if you started off by being enthralled by spirituality and, and then turning around and looking at materialism as... as a distraction, and then you mature to realize that God wants you to use that for a higher purpose, then you're going to do it for a higher purpose. But if you never had that first step, if materialism was always amazing on its own terms for you, then you're probably not going to be an alchemist. You almost need to have that first step of recognition that materialism is second rate to spirituality and then have the epiphany, aha, but I can use it for that purpose, so it is important. That's how you get there. I, I, again, I'm not trying to confuse anybody, but only to say that um, you kind of need that first step uh, asceticism, asceticism to then get to the second step with that, with, with the, the leveraging the material for good. Anyway. It seems to me it's about balance between spirituality and spiritual. Yeah. I mean, if, you, if you're just fully aesthetic and, and try to divorce yourself from all things material, and, and therefore all people that surround you, that's almost like feeding your ego uh, yeah. at, at, the, at the expense of... Uh, yeah, and I, I would just... To, I, I agree with you. I think there's a, there's all, there's a, a danger of feeding your spiritual ego. Because like, I want to be so spiritual that I'm going to neglect my physical body, which ultimately is the, is the, um, is the vessel for the soul. So, and again, if you have a, a small hole in the, in the body, it's a large hole in the soul. So then you're really neglecting your soul. But it's almost spiritual hubris to think like, 
oh, I'm gonna, I don't need anything. I don't need any supporting cast. You know, I'm just gonna be on my, you need, you need the, those resources. And if, 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 if our mission is to repair the world, you can't do that by yourself. Yeah. And you can't do that without the world. How can you repair the world if you're not holding something of the world in your hand? How, what are you, how are you repairing? If you have nothing, if you're in a room and there's nothing there, what are you repairing? You need to have, some, you need to have something that you're using. So forget about necessary. The easy example is tzedakah, and that's the example that was brought in one of the texts. The Rebbe mentions that, I think. But like another example that's a very basic example is food. Right? Every time we eat, we can, we can eat L'shem Shemayim for the sake of heaven. In other words, I'm eating for the sake of a higher purpose. I'm going to use the energy to do a mitzvah. But, but what if you're not eating? <laughs> then you're not elevating the food. In other words, if, when you eat for the right purpose, you're actually transforming the energy or you're tapping into the energy of the food and converting it into human energy that is then converted to divine energy because you did a mitzvah with it. So you're moving, you're, you're moving the energy. Right? What's the law of conservation of matter? Nothing is ever created or destroyed. So you're, you're transferring. It's a transference of energy from a plant or an animal into a human and then ultimately to God. If you're sitting alone with no food, you're not doing any transference of energy. Then you don't have the, the wherewithal. You don't have the... You don't, then you're not... It's the idea of, 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 of capturing and, 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 uh, and refining the sparks. No food, no sparks. Right? You don't have any sparks without any stuff. No we, stuff, no we sparks. We really should be eating like really clean, really good, to make ourselves better. Yeah, God. and that's what yeah, that's what the Sinai diet is. Yeah, I coined that term, the Sinai diet. It's gonna catch on one day. You remember the South Beach diet, the Atkins diet, the Sinai diet. We call that kosher. <laughs> so, By the way, I have a good, I have a good line. No sparks. No, sorry, no stuff. No sparks. No service. I, there's a few brand new lines that are coming out tonight. I hope this is being recorded. It is. It is. <laughs> <laughs> so, but I, but I like that story you had about the, um, the man who had the, di- the, the diamonds and the fish. Because like, yeah. what, what is, what, because I was thinking the other day, I may not have a lot, but I feel like I'm really rich. Mm. And it doesn't, Beautiful. And I always think of that yeah. story because it doesn't matter if it's, you know, to somebody, one thing might be wealthy, and then another person, it might be wealthy. But Currency is relative. Yeah. Right. Health. Health. And health and being happy happiness. And having, yeah. Yeah. Makes you wealthy. Mark. Yeah, I was, what I was asking about, the, having the same shores for the Hokovay and Kavod. Uh, yeah. That was my, that oh, was yeah, yeah. You're right. Yeah. Honor and heavy is the same. Yeah. It's the same shores. Because my, same my, letters. The yeah. letters are the same, except for has a Yeah, but what that's is, the same thing. Same thing. But what, what, is, what does Vav indicate? I, I don't know. Any particular? Okay. Vav indicates the typesetter was paid by the letter. Shocking. <laughs> no, that's the answer to the famous question. That's the joke answer. It's the famous question. Why is it that the Talmud always begins on page two? <laughs> If you notice, every page, I have a copy of the Talmud right here. So, here's, tra- oh my gosh, it's so heavy. Holy cow. Woo, it's, it's huge. Wow, I can't even hold it in my hand. So, when um, the Talmud, ooh, it smells dusty. Uh, ooh, cracking the spine here. That's the opening page. But look at, oh my gosh, everything's falling all over the place. Well, the title page is one. No. 
Oh, the title page. I know, no, no, yeah, but the actual page starts with page two. Daf Bet. See, right over. Bet. So the famous question is, why does the Talmud begin on page two? You got paid by the page. <laughs> Definitely not page one. <laughs> Definitely not page one. <laughs> Bulk up that page count. Um, yeah. All right. So would you, would you say what, one of the themes or a major theme of Sukkot is balancing the material? Yes. And the spiritual? That's a good way to put it. Balancing Sukkot theme, just repeating it again, when the, 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 the theme of Sukkot that's coming out tonight is balancing the physical and the spiritual. Is number one, we start off going spiritual heavy and saying, oh, this is so impermanent. But because it's so impermanent, well then let me use it for a permanent purpose and then I bring in my good stuff. So the sukkah has to be a little, slightly shaky, not actually shaky, but like a little not so permanent. But then in it, that's where we create the, the magic with the physical stuff. And the last day of the days on the ninth? The, the last day is the last day of Sukkot. So I, I won't know calendar days right now in my head or days. Oh, I know days of the week. The last day, the Simchat Torah day is going to be on a Sunday. A Sunday. Okay. So it starts on a Friday night, this Friday night. Right. And it goes Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Shabbat again, and then Sunday. So the last Sunday, uh, not special food necessarily, but where you eat the food. It's like Passover, you could eat where you want, but not what you want. On Sukkot, you could eat what you want, but not where you want. <laughs> That's how I remember it. So we, I was joking today. I was hanging out with uh, my brother-in-law, and we were joking that um, the ultimate would be to have, um, you know, to eat matzah in a sukkah while wearing a costume spinning a dreidel. Like, imagine if we did a Jewish holiday mashup while somehow balancing a ice cream sundae with apples and honey, but not eating anything. That would kind of be the, your holiday mashup. Is that which holiday would you dress up? Yeah. That's the Jewish dress-up holiday. I think we covered most. We spun the dreidel. We wore a costume. We had the, cheese, we had the ice cream for Shavuot. We had the matzah. We didn't eat it, and we had the apples and honey. Yeah, it's, Judaism is focused on food. If it's not what you're eating, it's where you're eating it, or you can't eat. Anyway, I want to wish everybody a Chag Sameach. Um, the month of Tishrei is really about emotional holidays, so that we had the first half of the month is more serious, but the second half is pure Simcha. So indeed, it should be, a, it should be yeah, it should be a, you know, a weeks now, or a week plus of joy, and... Um, Celebration and the joy it says can accomplish as much, if not more, than all the serious solemn activities. So the solemn prayer and you know the the fasting can evoke blessings, but you know what? Put in your dancing shoes. That can also work. <laughs> so that's what we do. All right, we'll see you guys. Malatov, We'll see you guys. Take care, everybody. Um, so we are off till after all the holidays. Because this Sunday...